talked about our bar fight. We didn't. This was something you and I talked about off podcast and realized that because of the timing of it, we never told our audience that Rowan and I got into what was my first bar fight. Was it your first bar fight? It was my first bar <laughs> fight too. <laughs> I don't want to just, you know. I just, I don't want to assume that assume. you don't get in fights. <laughs> hey, you're a tough lady, you know. I I am a tough broad. You can tell by the way I handled the fight <laughs> with my playground moves. <laughs> okay, Rowan, why don't you paint the picture for everyone of what happened? Okay, so Kaylee Bray of of Bluebeard episode Pixel Circus fame, best friend of the pod, Mm -hmm. Tracy and I were in New York City, which we've mentioned. We went for the holidays for a little jaunt. We went to go see burlesque and Mm -hmm. eat food and have a good time. Well, after the burlesque show, we went off to a bar that was just right there. Little tiny, snug little straight back bar. Really, ex- a bar we were really excited to pop into. It was like had cute little. I Christmas essentially lights. ordered tea. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting in the back in one of those corner booths. Mm-hmm. Like it's a table, but it's got a swoopy little corner situation. This is important for later. It yeah, it, it is has, important. <laughs> the booth is situated on a corner, so on one side you're kind of trapped because. I'm sitting on the other side of the table, so you can't get around me. And on the other side, you're trapped because Rowan's sitting on the other side of the table. And so Kaylee is in the corner of the booth, happily just trapped between us. Happily, because this is the chillest bar. We're in the back room. The only people coming in and out of this room are people going to smoke in the little yard thing. Mm -hmm. And then this guy comes in and he goes to the two guys in the room first and starts causing problems. He's clearly on something. He's having a moment. He's stumbling. He's a little aggressive. The three of us all clock it so fast because we're women in the city. (laughs) And then he decides to come over to us. Which we knew was going to happen. We We knew. knew. So we're all tensed and ready. And he walks up to us. And before he can even do anything, I think all three of us say, no, no. No, thank you. No. Yeah, I couldn't hear you guys, but I know he went right up to me, stood so close to me, he was against me, and I went, hey, man, not today. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys said anything. I think we did, but I know what he did next immediately was to curse you out, push you backwards, lean over the table to get closer to Kaylee. But I am not letting any man touch Kaylee on my watch. Yes. So this (laughs) is where Rowan stands up and pushes the man backwards i want to go on record though (laughs) there was no punching no it was like a a a little shoulder playground push honestly it's kind of embarrassing (laughs) yeah it was not it it was not an attack it was a you are nose to nose to me in my space get out of my space but you would think that she was the hulk and pushed this man (laughs) with all her strength with the way he went flying to the ground. Well, he did that thing where you step back and then he realized that he could be the victim and it could be dramatic. And so he just flung himself onto the ground. Think soccer player. Think football. Think (laughs) trying to get someone else in trouble. Flung himself to the ground. Moaning. He started throwing and kicking around chairs. He pulled over a table. Mm -hmm. He grabbed you and then he grabbed me. And every time... 
he grabbed one of us, the other two of us yes. were started freaking out. I was screaming. I was screaming at him, not like screaming for help, just yelling at him, don't touch my friends. Um, we learned we approach these things differently because <laughs> Kaylee's sitting there trying to figure out what the best weapon in the room is to defend, to defend all of people. us. Yeah. Rowan's sitting there trying to be as intimidating as possible by making herself large and quiet and getting, <laughs> you know, protecting us, <laughs> genuinely making herself a shield for me and Kaylee. And I'm yelling at this man <laughs> with every ounce of anger in my body because he kept trying to grab Rowan. For some reason, he decided Rowan was public enemy number one and he was going to take her down. At one point, he started pointing at me and speaking gibberish. and Oh, saying he and, was going to come get you and he was going to find you. and But then he grabbed your feet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then he tried to grab yours. It was a whole... It was a blur. It was, I remember, I, everything was a blur to me. But because, again, Kaylee was trapped by us, because <laughs> if she had flipped the table as she was planning to do, it would have hit me and or Rowan. So Kaylee remembered every detail of this interaction, whereas Rowan and I were in fight or flight, not processing information mode. It's so funny because right before that guy came up to us, all three of us were talking about fight, flight, or fawn responses mm -hmm. and how we don't really have fight responses for ourselves. <laughs> and then if it were in a movie, no one would believe it. Like he came up right away and we found out, no, we do have fight responses for each other. Yeah. It, if it was in a movie, you would have called it bad writing because it was so on the nose. And full shade to the bartender who just did not make an appearance for ages and then who sided with the guy. Yeah. And said that he could like, come back later and he didn't said end it was up no walking big us deal. outside. Yeah, he he said he'd walk us to our – we ordered a car. He said he'd walk us to the car and then he went outside and said, actually, that guy's down the street. Do you still need me to? And then we went outside and went, no, he's not down the street. So then thankfully, um, two men who were in the bar as well didn't say anything to us. Um they did at the time. They were just checking in that we were okay, and then they were kind of shocked at how okay we were because this kind of thing isn't as traumatic for us as it <laughs> rightfully should be, but it's just not – it's not something we had ruled out as a possibility right, when that right, man right. was walking around. <laughs> and they uh, stepped outside and made sure that we got into our car okay, and, and we ended up getting home okay. But um, I just thought it was so wild that the – drunk violent problem guy apologized to the bartender and then the bartender accepted his apology oh, on yeah. behalf of us yeah oh and other patrons kept asking us if he was okay and rowan just kept responding with i don't know he grabbed my friends i'm not really worried about him right now yeah so we, a lot of people in that bar did not pass the vibe check we're not saying to get involved in conflicts but if you see a conflict happen and people are there afterwards especially women um check on them because they might be presenting that they're okay but they could really use a kind word in that moment yo i will always get involved even if it's just being a witness i am i always will i have been alone too many times mm -hmm. but i I can comfortably say without a shadow of doubt that you and Kaylee are in fact ride or die. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was um, – we talked about it afterwards because I felt so grateful to have had both of those women there because there wasn't a single 
second that we weren't all fighting for each other or making sure each other was okay and taking charge. And we were thinking back to it of, you know, the men in our lives, how they might have reacted. And we think there would have been a lot more of a freeze response because the, uh, the other man in the room absolutely froze. He did nothing to help us. And there's just something about being there with women that you care about that makes you forget your own sense of self and fight for theirs. Yeah, just I I can't. No one can touch you guys on my watch. Same to you. I went <laughs> feral when he grabbed at you. I Oh, I know. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing red. Anyway, I think this is our moment. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. I'm your ride or die. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison, and I'm also your ride or die. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fight-worthy. <laughs> Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. Maybe we'll fight you about it. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> But if you'd like to support the show, think about checking out our merch. It's a really great way to help support the show. And you can show off all the cool stuff that you got to all the people around you and spread the word about our podcast. You can also join our Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable. We've got quite the fun gang of folks in our Discord channel, and we really love having you, and we've missed everyone while we've been away, so come yes. join us, hang out in our little virtual clubhouse in the virtual woods. <laughs> oh, yes. Every single time someone posts a picture of one of their pets or animals in our Discord, it gives me like an extra half heart on my health meter as I'm walking <laughs> about my day. It feels like lately we've been a really cat-focused group, so if you – I mean, listen, there aren't teams, but if you have a dog and want to contribute to the the balance, mm -hmm. you should hop in there with puppy pigs. <laughs> or a ferret or a bird or a turtle or like a cool rabbit Just you saw on guy. the road. Just a little guy. <laughs> or – you can support the show by building a miniature dollhouse of your own home with a teeny tiny little version of yourself inside of it listening to our podcast. Aww. <laughs> but no matter what, we're happy to have you here. That's haunted for sure. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> All right. So it's so funny. I'm thinking about this now. I think people would think that you would not be a fighter and... I'm sitting here going over the story that we just told and be like, no, Tracy is the one. I mean, my name, I guess, yeah. I don't know if we talked about this on the show. My name means little fighter. That's why I was given my name. Um, so I'm a twin. I was not doing very well in utero, but my parents said, we're going to ignore you, Dr. Doom and Dr. Gloom. That's what they actually called them. And um, they had picked out the name Jamie because my mom has always loved the Outlander series. So my sister Jamie is named Shut after up. James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Frazier from that book series. I forgot about that. How did I yeah. forget? <laughs> um, and so they were trying to figure out, okay, we know we have this one twin named Jamie. How can we figure out a name for the other twin? We want one that has a really important meaning. We want it to mean little fighter. And they ended up choosing Tracy, and that means little fighter. So uh, my my family, when I told them about the bar fight, were just like, yeah, obviously you got into a bar fight. That's literally in your name. <laughs> I like that I have 
I have such respect for your parents for instead of doing the matching first letter, they did the matching last sound. Oh, yeah. The twin names. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. But if you break down all my sisters, Katie, Shelly, Kimmy, Jamie, Tracy, although if you call my sister Kim, Kimmy, I think her head would explode. (laughs) I think my head would get exploded. (laughs) Kimberly. There we go. Uh, Katie, Shelly, Kimberly, Jamie, Tracy. (laughs) All right, we're talking about women. Listen to yes. this transition. Let's go. Amazing. <laughs> I'm doing it. It's incredible. This is the third installment of our storytime series. I quite like doing this. These are really fun for us. So we hope you enjoy listening to them and getting a background behind our thoughts and the way that we've tackled these stories because it's been so eye-opening for us to revisit them. Yeah, in good ways and harrowing ways uh, yeah. about my own work. <laughs> There's something, you know, always a little bit scary about confronting your your own work so closely. If it just wouldn't confront me back. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like when you stare into the darkness and the darkness is staring back at you. That's sort of what it feels like. So speak to me of your offerings today, Tracy. <laughs> so today we're talking about women in history, and these are all stories that I told. We're going to be talking about in historical order. This was important to Rowan. She wanted to make sure. <laughs> We go chronologically from when they existed. So we're going to talk about... apologize for nothing. Nor should you. It was a great suggestion. I just wanted to call it out so people knew. We're going to start with Artemisia Gentileschi from episode 47, Dido Elizabeth Bell from episode 81, Jing Shi from episode 25, and the Moscow Rules and Jonna Mendez from episode 52. We got to talk about you and women in history because, I mean, we as a collective, willing and fable, love a woman and history, Mm -hmm. but you really are, I think, the driving force behind us going in that direction. I love it. Uh, And I love it for a multitude of reasons because I love, I love history, always have. Um, I think we can learn a lot from history and looking at it and understanding the people. I also think that some of the best stories come from history. Things that you might never have known that sound fantastical have happened. Uh, It's part of why people love Game of Thrones so much. So much of what makes that story the crazy story it is, he pulled from real historical events. And so I, Mm -hmm. I love getting to dive into it. And then the other thing that I love is getting to use our platform to talk about women who've been overlooked in history and give, giving them their time in the light and showing what women can do and how powerful they can be and how amazing they can be. And so I just get giddy every time I get to dive into and share stories about women from history. It, it is a passion of mine. It's also very contagious and it invites me as the listener to your stories to make these women mythological to make them larger than life Mm -hmm. in a way that feels healthy because you know you have these historical figures who can become larger than life at the expense of the present right like they just outgrow humanity yeah and then there's looking at fantastic people in history who just become so radiant the more you look at them and perhaps because of their humanity and because you really get into the nuance of all of these women's experiences, I feel much more connected to them than I think a documentary that doesn't have the personal touch of your fiction yeah. would offer. 
Yeah, it's a good balance. You know, I I get more excited about diving into the nitty gritty of mythology and the darkness of it because you've made that something so appealing. And then on the flip side, getting to share my passion for history and especially women in history, it's like we've said, we're a good team. <laughs> Willing and fable. Willing. Emphasis on the and. <laughs> <laughs> Someone called us Hall and Harrison recently. Hall and Harrison. I think that's been a couple of times we've been called Hall and Harrison. And every time we're like, move over, Hall and Oates. Hall and Harrison's <laughs> here to stay. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> okay. So first up is Artemisia Gentileschi. This is from episode 47. If it's not Baroque, don't fix it. <laughs> <laughs> And for those who might not remember, Artemisia Gentileschi was a female Baroque painter from the 1600s, on par with the likes of Caravaggio and Jan van Eyck. And her work has been loved for centuries, especially when viewed through a feminist lens. This is especially true given the nature of one of the most famous parts of her life, which was her sexual assault at the hands of a family friend and the subsequent highly documented trial that occurred. So the story that I wrote for her was meant to reflect the complicated emotions of being a woman in a male-dominated field. And a little editor's note, I got to see her most famous painting when I went to Italy. Mm -hmm. And... Tell them. (laughs) Okay, so it was... I, I literally ran through the Uffizi Gallery once I found out that the painting was there. Um... (laughs) <laughs> because there's a set tour that you do and the set path and it's not on it, which is a crime. What? It's a crime. They go through, I mean, they go through the Da Vinci's and they go through the birth of Venus and paintings you you do want to see. But I went straight into the Baroques and I, I wanted to find this. And so you turn a corner and Judas slaying Holofernes is hanging up there. So we get into this room and it's just me and two of my sisters and I start going off. I'm like, look at this. This is her later painting compared to the early one. You'll notice she put this detail here and the colors (laughs) change. It was from yellow, from the original blue. And you can see this here and the blood spatter is different. And go talking but just getting so excited and talking about her life and saying, you know, here's where she learned. And this was at this point in her life and this was going on. And I turn and realize there's a small crowd around, which I don't know if it's just because I was standing there and talking, if they were listening to me talking, or if it was just more people moving into the room. But my my older sister loves to joke that I accidentally became a tour guide for about 10 minutes because I was just so genuinely excited and focused on the painting. I didn't even realize that I was giving a lecture. (laughs) You can take the nerd out of the podcast, but you can't take the podcast out of the nerd. (laughs) The other great surprise for me was that I then turned another corner and got to see Caravaggio's shield of Medusa right in the center of the room, which, of course, I then ran and took a picture of and a selfie with just for Rowan. Thank you. And you got me a tote bag, which Mm -hmm. is exactly the kind of swag that I want. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Let's listen to that story. To me, there are few things in this world more perfect than the sight of linseed oil dropped onto a palette which has been coated in a finely milled pile of lapis lazuli dust. Few artists can afford the rich blue pigment, as the stone must be mined from the Middle East and brought all the way to Italy. But I can afford it, and I plan to use it well, and not just for the Virgin Mary, as most artists reserve the color, but for all women. 
Some say that Jan van Eyck invented oil painting, but that's not true. He merely elevated the art form. As his peer, I learned quite a lot from watching him paint, observing his techniques, and seeing his process. But I was determined to surpass him. And why shouldn't I? Was I not a member of the Academy of Arts and Drawing? The first woman to achieve such an accolade, no less? He was a man. A talented man, but a man nonetheless. One who produced art with the same perspective and painting the same stories as hundreds of men had before him. I could already see the painting in my mind's eye as I mixed the colors together, blending my concoction until the paint reached the right consistency. This was as much an art form as the painting itself. Prepping the ingredients, mixing the colors, priming the canvas. All of it was fundamental to the success of the painting. Beeswax, linseed oil, clay, calcified bone, and mineral pigments, these were my meager offerings. Raw ingredients blended together harmoniously to create the thick piles of wet paint that I would use to tell a story. There was a small delight in stirring the perfect pigment and finding the right color in discovering a new way to blend and merge and mix until the painting bent to my will. In this small way, I was a god, and this canvas was my world. I would create and destroy and build and rebuild until I made perfection, until my story was complete and until everything was as I wished it to be. Men attacked their paintings with brutality, breaking and bending them to their wills. They come at their art with a head-on attack, but I... I spoke to my art, gently coaxing the subject into the light and breathing life into them with each small word. Such was the nature of my work compared to theirs. I wanted to learn and grow with each painting, and my fellow men wanted to dominate their own. Some might call it a weakness to be so delicate in my work, to be so soft and gentle with each caress of brush to canvas, but I know better. I know there is no strength in brutality, no courage in raw power. Strength and courage come from those who choose to wield it despite the odds. Anger is easy. Hate is simple. Violence is a more readily available satisfaction than patience, but that does not mean it is the right choice to make. Sometimes the best revenge is to show them all how little they mean to you. And it doesn't hurt to be so infinitely better at them in their own craft that they must bow before you in awe and reverence. That is true power. That is true strength, and that is what I hold in my hand each time I pick up a brush and a palette of paint. I will never again bow to anyone but the muse that guides my hand across the canvas, for she is the only one that wields power over me now. And I thank her each day for the strength she has given me and the courage that allows me to be better than every man I have ever met and refuse to pretend otherwise. When I look back at the canvas, I realize that a pair of eyes was staring back at me. I had painted them in such a state of blindness as to be shocked to see them so clearly defined and glaring back at me with the same intensity of passion I felt in my chest. I smiled, ready to meet the newest subject of mine as she emerged from the canvas. I could feel her already, and I could tell she would be a woman of strength and power, and I was eager to make her acquaintance. All right, then, I whispered to her. Let us begin. Okay, so in this episode, 
you announced that you were doing an internal monologue before you started the story. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we don't really do a lot of preamble and sometimes we do. I was excited by that because that style is very familiar on the show. It's something that you and I do. I feel like especially you do. Yeah. But it to me, it was particularly charming in this case because artists can just feel so distant. Mm. Like you consume their work, but you don't consume them. Yeah. And kind of like you did in the museum, loving her makes loving her work so much better. Yeah. This was a really fun piece to write because I got to channel some of my own frustrations being a woman in a male-dominated field and seeing the way the men mm. around me approach things compared to the way the women do. And so mm. that was kind of the catalyst of me talking about men attacking things and women seducing them slowly and solving things and kind of gently mm. approaching problems. Um, and it translates really well into her life. I would describe the way she in this story spoke about art as just being delicious like you, you really got in there it was like mythical emotional she was she had a relationship with the activity of painting and y'all I, I feel like we, we have this title of being writers now but like tracy it has such stellar perspective on paint and photography and how light affects things listening to you write about the making of art is like Mwah. oh thank you it was really fun i actually spent a lot of time researching um baroque painting techniques so the facts that i talked about of how she made the paint the tools used the the product she used the lapis lazuli the way that she blended the paints the idea that you you had to make your own paint and the formulation of it was as much an art as the painting of itself that was really fun and fascinating for me to dive into for this story I'm like, mix me like one of your lapis paints, Artemisia. <laughs> New merch that no one will understand. <laughs> Put it on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so going forward in time. Yes. Backwards? Forwards. That's that thing where you say if I move a meeting up, are you moving it or move a meeting back where people have different perspectives and on which... we've talked about this. We have opposite perspectives. For me, moving forward in time means we're getting later after Artemisia. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. If I move a meeting forward, which way is it for you? If it was originally at 10 o'clock and you're moving it forward, it's now 9 o'clock. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So maybe it's not opposite. And if you're pushing it back, it's now 11 At 11. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're the same. Okay, great. <laughs> well, moving same, forward same. in time, <laughs> we're now going to talk about Dido Elizabeth Bell. So Dido Elizabeth Bell became famous because of a single portrait. She was a black woman in Georgian society treated with a degree of respect and admiration that was almost never seen in those times. The stories that I wrote for this episode are two different stories tied together by the idea of respect and appreciation in a world that doesn't want you to deserve those things. The first is a letter written from the point of view of a young white woman who sees Dido for the first time and is absolutely amazed and enthralled by her and doesn't see a problem with a black woman in society. What I wanted for Dido at the time and the second is a letter written by Dido to her own children, hoping for a better world for them. 
Okay, I, I love this. <laughs> My dearest cousin, I'm enjoying my stay in Hampstead immensely. I find the country to be quite diverting and far more interesting than you could imagine. Though I spend most of my days taking walks on the grounds and exploring the late spring gardens, I have not lacked for intrigue. Oh, I must tell you the most incredible story about the experience I had just the other night. Mama and I were invited to Kenwood Estate for dinner. Everything started out normally. We were with the family in their lovely dining room. It was myself, Mama, Miss Elizabeth Murray, and Lord and Lady Mansfield. On the whole, it was a lovely, if rather uneventful, evening. That is, until we sat for our after-dinner coffee. Mama and I had just sat down with Lady Mansfield and Elizabeth when a new young lady walked in. She had a rich, dark complexion and a mass of intricately woven curls atop her head— and her gown. Oh, such exquisite silks I've, I've never seen before. And, and she moved and spoke with such grace. She was all smiles, and she held conversation with us for the remainder of the entire evening. I know I'm young, and I have not seen much of the world, but I've never seen or heard of someone who looks like her in the position of a lady— Mama was quite scandalized by the whole affair and spoke of that evening for days afterward. In fact, when I asked her why more women of means didn't look like Miss Dido, that was the young lady's name, she told me that it simply isn't done. She said women like her should be servants and nothing more. But I disagree. Oh, cousin, if I could be but half as accomplished as Miss Dido, I will count myself as a great success. She can read and write and play piano and sing songs and recite poetry with such conviction. And to do all of this when no one even believes it's possible of you, that's a talent that few possess. I can only hope that our paths cross again once more, as I believe I have much to learn from Miss Dido Elizabeth Bell. Yours, Anna. To my dearest children, I'm writing this to you in the hopes that you live in a world with more open arms than that of the one I was born into. I hope it's a world that sees you for the person that you are and not the color of your skin. One in which you are defined by your words and your actions instead of the body you inherited. I cannot say that I am overly hopeful that this is the case. However, in all my years on this earth, I have learned the importance of hope however small it might be. Hope, combined with hard work, is the key to change. It's not always fast, and Lord knows it's not even always linear, but it is real. Once something has been given to you, it's hard to take it back, and I promise you, my children, that I am fighting for this world to give you more than it has ever graced upon me. So my ask of you my dearest ones, is to demand everything. Demand to have equality, respect, and to have your voice heard. Demand it often and demand it loudly. You will hit walls often headfirst, I'm afraid, but you must stay strong. Be stubborn as an ox, yet fluid as the river. 
Your life will be that of contradictions, hard yet soft, tough but gentle, proud yet humble. But remember this, you must bend often but never break. Society will try to break you. Agonizingly, slowly, and bit by bit, they will try to wear you down into nothing. They will try to make you into something so small that they can crush you under their boot. But that will not be you, my child, because you know how to be strong, how to be brave, and you know that you need to be twice as good to be seen as an equal. Life will not be easy for you, but it has the chance to be exceptional. And I will pray every day that you know a world so unlike mine that these words mean nothing at all. A scary story of the cruel past. A history lesson. But in the event that these words do ring true, take heart that I have paved a path for you to follow. All my love, your mother. I don't want to sound like a broken record. I love it when you do first person with historical fiction. Thank you. We'll call that a Tracy Hallmark. I'll take it. I love doing it, so. In this one, you just really leaned into that, like, Anglophile language, the heightened quality. It made me, the first letter made me smile. It was fun. I wanted Anna to exist. I wanted Anna to exist and be so naive and see Dido and see nothing but the excellence of her. Because Dido had to be better than everyone else to be seen as acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I wanted someone to look at her and, and say that woman sang and wrote and read poetry and sat straighter than I could have and spoke more elegantly and eloquently than I ever could have. And can you believe such a woman exists? And I don't understand why mama says we can't ever see her again and and just not seeing it. And I, I know that that is this unrealistic optimism, but I get to write something for Dido and damn it, she deserves unrealistic optimism. And so I wanted to put that in there. No, I love that. It reminds me of that story that went around on Twitter where the little white boy said he had a friend at school who looked exactly like him. And then when his parents met the little boy, when the two families met, it was the one little white blonde boy and the one black boy with dark curly hair. And he was like, well, yeah, we look the same. We both have short hair and we're the same height. Yeah. (laughs) And that is the most charming, wonderful thing. Yeah. I love the first letter especially because you are just showing the way that women will like gush and fawn over each other in this genuine way when there isn't competition that like kind of forced the crabs in the bucket situation. Yeah. And it's so gentle and tender the way she talks about Dido. You can just feel it not only in what she's saying but how she's saying it. And seeing women really care for each other is something that I wish I consumed more media of. Because you see it in family dynamics in media. Mm-hmm. But like just that kind of common bond that could come about from a lot of things, being the same of something in a scenario, being two outsiders, being two young people. But in that scenario, the two women seeing 
each other and saying, oh, you, you have, you are the same as me in this way. And I love you for that. Yeah. There's a romance to it. And I mean like a platonic romance, just like a, that kind of quality. Yes. Uh, you hit the nail on the head, a, a platonic, a romance, a I, I wanted the word, the, the word that kept ringing in my head while writing it was reverence. I wanted, mm, mm-hmm. I wanted the character of Anna to to look at Dido and see nothing but a version of perfection she could become and aspire mm-hmm. to and be excited by that idea and to want to know more and to see more and not feel threatened in any way, but just feel like I've been given the opportunity to see what hard work and dedication and amazement can look like. I think you really carried that through into the second letter. And we've talked about this on the podcast. And I think we talk about this in maybe even that the rest of that episode, if I'm remembering correctly. But the way that Black women are portrayed as being strong and aggressive, uh, very often because society puts them in positions where it is either be strong or be harmed. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of writers, black writers, much more equipped than us who really are talking about that and kind of diving into it. But I think in this letter, you kind of carried that vein of tenderness through and we got to hear Dido be really gentle in in this very nuanced way. Gentle is not the right word, but I hope you know what I mean. <laughs> it's it feels intimate. Perfect word. Yeah. The second one came from a little bit of my own experiences. So, so I mean, I think I've, I've mentioned many times in this podcast that I have two nephews who are two young little black boys who mean literally everything to me. I, I love them with my whole heart and more. And I'm very, very close with my sisters-in-laws. I have been since I was a child. I mean, my brother-in-law has been my brother since He's I was- He's been in the family forever. <laughs> yeah, since I, I think I was six or seven. I mean, I've just known him my whole life and and his sister and his brother and, and Doris, his mother. And and seeing especially Doris and the the hardship she's had to endure and the way that that woman is more graceful and queen-like and- kind and loving and generous with her heart and her love and the way that she's put that onto her children. People are so multidimensional and I was so inspired by the story, by the people in my life and and the way that we all want better for those boys. And we Mm -hmm. want them to live in a world where the idea that they are black boys in America doesn't mean anything or doesn't mean anything bad or, or they can respect the history they came from, but it's not the world they're in. And it was a really hopeful letter, and I and I wanted it to hit home a little bit. The idea that a woman in the 1800s was writing a letter and saying, "I know the world's going to see you differently because of the color of your skin that you inherited through no fault of your own," but I hope, I hope it doesn't affect your life. And then to then realize that in 2023, a mother could write the same letter to her children and hope for the same things because it hasn't reached what you wanted it to 200 years ago. Finding and feeling the heartbreak in writing that isn't on its face directly speaking about heartbreak is very moving. It makes, for me as a reader, I feel it more intimately because so often when something really crushes me, I have to work my way around it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to touch it right away. And I, I listened to the second letter multiple times because of the way that you really got close to that. 
Yeah, that one, that that was a story where there was just no way for me to tackle it in one. I needed mm -hmm. to tell two different stories and, and I'm glad that, I'm glad that I did that. So now we're going forward in time again. Yes, we are. We are jumping up into the late 1800s for episode 25, Jing Shi. Jing Shi was known as the Terror of the South China Seas, and she was an infamous pirate during the late 19th century. She commanded a crew of hundreds and was known to be an excellent leader. The story that I wrote for this episode is my version of the real story of her surrender to the government. She and almost all of her crew were able to retire and live out the rest of their lives in peace, which is not something you hear a lot of pirates doing. The way I am obsessed with this woman. I love her. <laughs> because of your work on this episode. Oh my God. It, 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 <laughs> she's amazing. She's She is, she started with nothing and created through her own brilliance and strength and empire and then decided to retire and ended her life as a gambling house owner and died peacefully in her sleep. I don't understand why I had to learn about a whitewashed version of the cotton gin five times in a row when my public education history could have given me lady pirates right? who gamble and kick ass. Yes. <laughs> it, it is a travesty that we had to learn the same 400 years of American history every year for all of our education when there are so many cooler stories out in the world. And that's called indoctrination, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. I'm gl I'm glad I'm glad that she is getting a second run in this episode with her story because mm. <laughs> I love her. It was really cool to write this story. The government official stood in the center of the room with his hands behind his back, staring out the wide window as the sun slowly sank towards the horizon. He could see the amber light flashing off the dark waves of the sea, and though his tight posture might not show it, he was confident that these negotiations would go well. He felt relaxed, even. He knew that if he could make this work, he would be rewarded greatly and known for the rest of history as the man that took down the terror of the South China Seas. After all, she was just a woman, and there was no world in which he could not outsmart a single woman. It was then that Jing Shi, the most notorious pirate in the world, walked confidently into the room. She was undeniably beautiful and had a presence that was equally powerful. Dark hair fell unrestrained around her oval face and her lips were painted a deep blood red for the occasion. But if the official hesitated at the sight of her, he didn't show it. Behind the woman walked in more women and children. All of them had a similar look of fear on their face, but it was not fear of the woman whom they followed. It was fear of him. He swallowed hard. Or maybe it was fear for him. They kept looking towards the woman at the head of the group as if waiting on her command to speak or move. And at this he did hesitate, and a confusion swept across his face. What is the meaning of this? he demanded. Jing Shi calmly walked into a stately office and sat herself down on the chair opposite his desk. What does it look like? she inquired. A negotiation. 
And for that, you need an entire entourage. He waved his hand uselessly towards the group of women and children before him as he spoke. No, she replied, standing up to face the man. For that, I need only myself. However, it is for my crew that I need insurance that you won't do anything drastic. She looked towards the group crowded together in the corner of the room. This is my insurance. The man's jaw clenched. You're despicable. He spat towards her. Oh my, Ching Shi replied with a laugh. You seem quite agitated. I thought we came here for a peaceful negotiation for myself and my crew. But if I was mistaken, then I'm quite happy to see myself out and return to my business. Before she could turn to leave, the man shot out a hand. No, that won't be necessary. He bowed. I apologize for my rude behavior. He spoke through clenched jaws as he pointed back to the chair. Please, sit. If I could be so bold, she said, sitting back in the chair as casually as if she were sitting down for a chat with an old friend. Might I request something to drink? The man stopped halfway towards sitting down. And would you like me to also bring your... companions? Drinks as well? Jingxi smiled, a beautiful smile that lit up her entire face. If you would be so kind. The man called out to a servant and requested drinks for the pirate and her... Seventeen companions. Once all were served, Jingxi sat across from the government official and began negotiations. The sun set low in the horizon, falling below the waterline. Candles were lit, dinner was brought, and drink after drink continued to be poured. Jingxi remained calm throughout it all, never once raising her voice or casting out insults, and the man's face grew redder and redder by the hour. In the end, she and her fellow women and children walked out of the room free as the birds that chirped in the morning sun. Jingxi came out of that room the obvious victor. No amount of twisting the results would convince anyone that she'd failed, and the man knew it as he watched her walk away. He'd just allowed the most notorious and powerful pirate in the world to retire in wealth and freedom, and he, for the life of him, could not understand how that happened. But this is what happens when you underestimate the Queen of the South China Seas. History forgets your name in order to remember Jing Shi. This was back in the episodes when we used to say history delivers. <laughs> Which I still believe. Uh, but yeah, I haven't said as much. Uh, history, history delivers. You pull from history, you get some cool stories. But here's the thing. Sometimes history will deliver some badness it'll be good it'll be bad but it will always be great and i mean great like big right like <laughs> alexander the not like <laughs> <laughs> oh no i broke her oh no <laughs> why was that so funny <laughs> gentlemen friends and foes i am undone <laughs> i can go home and call today a victory <laughs> oh my god that brought tears to my eyes <laughs> i feel so good right now i will never make a joke as good as that one 
for the rest of my life. Such a good history joke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the mania is setting in. (laughs) Love to see it. (laughs) So, okay. So we're back Mm -hmm. in the South China Sea. Yes. Oh, she actually was the powerful badass that I dreamed that she would be. Yes. And she wrangled the whole world around. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, it's just the scope of what she did, the number of people that she employed, the amount of territory she controlled, the industries she was at the head of. Absolutely. And on top of it, she had a very famous set of rules that was at the on the mast of every ship. So every ship that she owned had this set of rules that people had to follow. And it included, you cannot sexually assault our prisoners. And if you do, you have to marry them and provide for them. And then if the two of you agree to have a sexual relationship, you have to get married and you still have to provide for them. And I mean, on top of a million other things, but like, That's so clearly a woman who's been through things, being in charge and having the opportunity to then lead the way she wants to. She also had a thing of if you disobeyed, they would cut off one of your ears because you weren't using it to listen anyway. And then if you kept disobeying, she would just kill you. Well, the marriage thing, it sounds wild now. Like, why would you want to marry someone who sexually assaulted you? But in in that time, you need a provider now. You Mm -hmm. very likely are pregnant It makes absolute sense. Right. I really love that you took a Devil Wears Prada, quiet, simmering, powerful tack with this. Yes. That was the energy. Let him him talk himself into trouble. Oh, yeah. Just wait. Little spider. Mm -hmm. I also loved that you described her as being beautiful you allowed her to be beautiful because it was from the perspective of the man that she was negotiating with a man who would value a woman's beauty over anything else she could bring to the table potentially Mm -hmm. and so expressing his understanding of that rather than completely ignoring it was so much more valuable to understand the situation that she was in Absolutely. And she was famously beautiful. She worked um, as a sex worker and was in part able to become the woman she was because she used her beauty in her favor. And so I wanted to include that because to her it was much – it was as much a weapon as her intelligence. And she used all the weapons she had to her advantage. I love her. I do too. I found out about her from a book called Bygone Badass Broads, (laughs) which is fantastic. It's 52 Forgotten Women Who Changed the World. Do we own that book? We. I said we. (laughs) I own this book. Um, I don't know if you have a copy. I might have sent you one, but it's on our recommendations page on our website. You got me a really good book for Christmas, but it wasn't that one. No. What was it? I shouldn't ask. I don't remember. No. No. I'd have to go dig, and I know where it is, and it's really deep. (laughs) All of the books we talk about on this podcast can be found on our recommendations page. Unless we forget. (laughs) (laughs) It's just us, guys. Yeah. (laughs) We do our best. (laughs) 
All right. So that's actually fair. We haven't said that in a while. If ever you want a thing that we recommended and it's not on our recommendations page, you can just ping us. We care about you and we want you to be happy and we want you to buy stuff that we like so that you can support cool other artists we like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, please do. Uh, You can always reach out to us on our TikTok, our Instagram, our Twitter, our email. We're really easy to reach out to. We're only somewhat scary. Just a little. We only bite a little bit. A little. <laughs> okay. So we're going, I like this transition. I like it. Mm-hmm. We're going from pirate to spy. Yes. We're moving forward to the 1980s. So to date, this episode, episode 52 on espionage, is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. <laughs> the research for this was pure joy. The part of the episode that I did was about the CIA's Moscow rules made famous by Jonna and Tony Mendez. In their book and their many YouTube videos, Jana talks about the various plans, tools, techniques, schemes, and plots used by the CIA in Russia during the Cold War. And the story that I wrote for this episode includes real tactics used by spies in the 80s while working in Russia. Tracy loves a spy story. I do. Who doesn't? Who doesn't, Who doesn't love a spy story? <laughs> I, I love Cold War spy stories especially because it was – just the right amount of technology to be scary and just not enough technology to be too scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is not to say it wasn't deadly, but you know how when you really examine the amount that we're surveilled today, y- you want to die? It's harder to work around. The, the, it's a perfect time period. The Let's say James Bond 40s-ish up through Moscow Rules 80s where you can be alone in a room and do really cool spy stuff and then walk out of the room and no one saw you. And now, there, like you said, there's surveillance. There's cell phones everywhere. There's cameras everywhere. There's Even then in, in the 80s, there was surveillance. Um, in the episode, we talked about how in the embassy, they actually built a room off of the floor that was unattached to any of the walls. And that room was specifically for the most top secret conversations they had because it was the only space in all of Russia they knew that wasn't bugged. Yeah, I found out recently that when the president goes to different places around the world, they have to make a special tent in his hotel room. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Is that for, like, anti-spying purposes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, this stuff is so cool. Tracy, let's go to a fancy hotel room that the president would stay in mm-hmm. and then pitch a tent and have super top secret podcast conversations. <laughs> Can we make it, like, a pillow fort tent? Oh, 100%. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> All right, so this is the story about a spy working in Russia in the 80s. As I stood on the sidewalk a few blocks away from the airport, I was certain that my racing heart would give me away. It was beating so loudly I could feel the pounding reverberate through my skull like a drum. It didn't matter that the chatter of crowds and the whirring of cars on the street overpowered any sounds at all. I was still certain that they could hear it. Somehow, that the thump, thump, thump of it would give me away. The KGB could be clever like that sometimes. I stood on the curb as though waiting for a car with a small suitcase in my right hand and a coffee cup in my left. My pink, button-down dress tugging against my thighs in the evening breeze. I quietly cursed the fashion gods for making miniskirts popular this summer. 
and I pulled my hands closer to my chest in order to stop myself from tugging my skirt down for the twentieth time. As I stood on the curb, I scanned the crowd looking for a man with a red and white checkered button-down shirt and tan slacks. It should be obvious in a sea of grays and browns and blacks, but my eyes were not catching on anything bright aside from the few flowers that poked through the concrete sidewalk. I wiped a sweaty palm on my dress and began to move through the crowd, eyes flicking back and forth for my target. A small older woman passed by my right, quickly followed by a woman with two small children, all of whom looked me up and down as much as I did them. Two men in suits walked past my left, and I could feel their eyes linger on me even as they went down the sidewalk. Could they tell? No, the KGB didn't employ women, especially not blonde women in bright pink dresses. Still, I didn't turn around. There was no point in checking. If they knew who I was, then I would be caught. If they didn't, then I would continue my mission. Simple as that. At that moment, I spotted him, up ahead, walking calmly towards me. I recognized the shirt immediately, and it took all my energy not to speed up my pace to meet him. Instead, I kept my walk steady, and as we got near each other, I took a fake sip of my coffee. As I raised my left hand to take the sip, my right hand reached out and brushed his. I could feel the small film canister press into my palm, and a thrill shot down my spine. This was it. This was the moment I had trained for. I slipped the canister up my sleeve and moved the suitcase to my other hand while I tossed the empty coffee cup into the trash can and took a sharp right turn around the edge of the building where a car was waiting for me to arrive. I climbed into the passenger seat and placed my suitcase at my feet and settled in for a moment. Evening, John, I said as I leaned my head back. John leaned over and kissed my cheek. Good to see you too, dear, he said as we drove away from the curb. I hope your travel was uneventful. Did you know they serve champagne on planes? I didn't know that, and I was thrilled when the stewardess offered me a glass. As I spoke, I pulled off my long blonde wig, revealing a mass of short, dark curls. We weren't certain if they could hear us, but it didn't hurt to have a mundane conversation anyway. That's nice, dear, John replied. I bet airplane champagne is better than what we have here on the ground. I unbuttoned the front of my dress, much to John's amusement, and revealed a man's shirt underneath, much to his disappointment. Well, you know me, I prefer a nice red, but when in Rome, or <laughs> Moscow, I suppose, <laughs> I said as I pulled out a pair of slacks from the suitcase and slipped them on as gracefully as I could, rounding out the look with a pair of dress shoes. Anyway, I'm tired, and I'm going to close my eyes for a bit, darling. I said as our car took two quick right turns. At that moment, I knew I had five seconds to execute my mission. I pulled out a small box from the suitcase and put it on the seat next to me. Then I tucked the film canister into my shirt pocket, gave John a wink, opened the door, and rolled out. I flicked out a small rod and watched it expand into a full cane, then I kicked a pebble into my shoe and placed a hat on my head. I looked back and saw that John had pulled open the cord on the box in the car, revealing a large cutout of a person in the front seat. Two people had rounded the corner in our car, and now two people appeared to be driving away. As the surveillance car tailing us rounded the corner, they saw an old man hunched over and limping along the road with his cane, and they saw two people driving away in our car. 
They followed our car and ignored me completely. Perfect. I was a free agent now, and I knew I needed to use that time wisely. I limped my way down the road. Damn, that pebble hurt. But I made it to the large tree at the corner of the nearest intersection. There at the base of the tree was the object I was looking for. And I let out a long sigh. The agents really did like to use the term dead drop literally. I poked at the taxidermied rat with my cane a few times. Yep, this was it. No one but me would be crazy enough to pick up a dead rat on the side of the road. The rat was split down the stomach and hollowed out to be a container. Inside was a small file rolled up tightly. I took the file out and replaced it with the film canister and tucked the roll into my pocket. I dropped the rat, turned around, and walked away. As I limped my way back to the main thoroughfare, I felt a rush of satisfaction flood through me. I'd just completed a data transfer, put on a new disguise, lost my tail, and su successfully delivered a dead drop as a new agent in Moscow. I looked down at the document that was inside the rat, and the first line left a small grin on my face. Congrats, Agent Smith. Now let the work begin. I love the bit about the rat. <laughs> <laughs> that was real. That was an actual, again, all of this was like, you can look it up. They did this. They used taxidermy rats because who's going to pick up a taxidermy rat? It's so icky. Yes. <laughs> it's so gross. I mean, the whole idea of espionage I find so fascinating because it is this balance of doing things no one would ever, ever, ever dream of doing and then simultaneously portraying yourself as the most boring person possible. Y'all, you heard it here first. Being a spy, sticky and boring. Sticky, icky and boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people always forget that to be a spy, you have to mostly be lame. Like, all day, every day. The Americans, I think, made that kind of popular on TV because yes. they showed yeah. people embedded for a really long time. Mm -hmm. I'd be so bad at being a spy. I'd be terrible at it. I wanted the CIA to recruit me so bad when I was little. <laughs> Again, who didn't? Or did we just grow up thinking that everyone had the same experiences as us? We played spies as kids. Yeah, right in. Did you all play spies? Did you want to be recruited? Did you know it would be boring? I thought it would be all cool cars and laser watches. It's because James Bond made us all think that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No. And uh, okay, so in this spy story, I really liked that you also put in this wry humor, which is that working humor, you know, like mm -hmm. you see it in ERs. People who are around really dangerous things all the time, you just get a little dry, a little saucy. Mm -hmm. They're having a good time with it, even though it's dumb and funny. My favorite detail with that was the conversation that they had, like acting like they were just chatting. Mm -hmm. Did you have to pick and choose the spycraft elements that you liked the best to fit together? Was there too many things? Because I remember when you were researching this, you texted me at one point, just being like, ah! <laughs> yeah. Oh, there were so many more spy things that I wanted to include. And if you go back and listen to the episode, I'd start describing them more because I couldn't include them all. There, there are everything you can talk about, the, the lipstick weapons, the pen mm -hmm. weapons. My favorite are the semi-animated masks, which were designed, sculpted to your face. They can be thrown on in five seconds. That's the idea. Is it takes five seconds to put it on and you have a full, completely different face, potentially different hair to the point where you could have a 
one-on-one conversation with someone at a coffee shop sitting across a table and they would have no idea it wasn't your real face. I don't understand. It's incredible. And that was the, that was what they had in the 80s. It's declassified now, which means it's no longer being used. So they clearly have more advanced technology. So in this, I included things like the pop-up person. That was very mm-hmm. real. Um, the rat for the dead drop. The... Um, <laughs> A bunch of, there's a bunch of different tools and techniques. You know, you could put a fake palate on the roof of your mouth so that you speak differently. Mm. Um, there was also a, a mission they did where they had a couple get a dog, a very distinct looking dog, and they would drive it around every day at a certain time to go on its walk or go to a park. And then one day they had a man and they hid oh, him I under a blanket that was the shape of the dog asleep in the back seat, and they got him out completely unaware. No one knew. That's so good. It's incredible. Oh, to be the spy dog. To be the spy dog. That's the best. That's what I'd want. No pressure. Just spy. No pressure. Just spy. Good boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I intentionally included um, the idea that the woman was a spy in this, the, the main character being a woman, because the KGB famously did not hire women. And so they didn't look for women. And there was a woman that was captured that got away because when they interrogated her, she stuck to her story and they just really were like, okay, well... She's just a secretary. They wouldn't use her just like we wouldn't use women. So we'll let her go. Imagine thinking half of the population, you just disregard. They couldn't spy. Yeah. They don't even count. Yeah. It's so good. Like I said, one of my favorite episodes we've done, we got to touch on espionage again because researching it is just like brings out the giddy, giddy child in me. You know, sometimes I sit around and I think to myself, it's such a bummer that women have more rights now because now Russia will suspect me of being a spy and the CIA won't recruit me. Yeah. Bummer. (laughs) That's the only reason I'm not a spy. (laughs) The single reason. (laughs) Thank you for... Well, doing them in order for me. I know. I knew that was for me. Yes, thank you for suggesting that. But thank you for being our like banner waiver for women in history it's really inspiring for me i i find myself trying to pick topics like that more but i also just get to sit around and get educated yeah teach me the thing it's an honor i we talk about it a lot but what i love about this show is that we get to just pick and choose the things that are really important to us and the things that really motivate us and dive deep into them and so I, I am proud and honored to be our women in history champion and will continue to do so the same way that you champion for some of the coolest, most esoteric mythology stories <laughs> that are just off the walls amazing. So, you know, we'll continue to partner together. I think that's a pretty good partnership. I think this episode really highlighted for me how valuable the creative writing aspect is. I've listening back to all these episodes i felt so much closer to the the women the people in these stories after you wrote from their perspective yeah i I agree and and what i try to do when i talk about not just women in history but people in history i always struggle with how am i going to do something creative while also honoring their lives because it's not the same as a story that everyone's heard of a million times where okay everyone knows what a unicorn is so i'll you know like you did write a science fiction story about unicorns set in the future like take a twist on it people haven't heard of so that's where a lot of the letters come in or the diary entries or the first person narratives because i want to 
give our listeners and myself, frankly, the chance to live in their world and live in those experiences and share it from a different point of view while still honoring the very real lives that we're discussing. I like it. Oh, I like I'm it a glad. lot. Thank you. Should we tell me something good? Yeah, I think it's time to tell me something good. I'm going to make you go first, Rowan. Listen, my something good is so basic. Y'all, I have been sick for like five weeks. It's unending. Uh, everyone send her hearts and loves and <laughs> cough drops and Dayquil. I have been absolutely dying on the vine. Um, <laughs> like, shockingly so. Um, but I, I, like, feel better and we're recording today. Mm -hmm. So I will, I will count that as my something good. I'm going immediately to bed after this, but I am... So happy <laughs> to be recording with you. Yeah. I hit that point in being sick where I'm like, do I? I'm losing my will to live. Oh, the yeah. soup and the the Dayquil isn't cutting it anymore. Yeah, that feeling of being sick where you're like, is this just forever now? Is this just life? Yeah, like I, the last little bit, I've had to be like, do I just accept this as the baseline? Because like it's not getting better. Right, and it's not an acceptable baseline either, which sucks. Yeah, so I I know we range on our something goods from really cool stuff to not cool stuff. This is just like the bare minimum. I'm just delighted to be podcasting. Yes, and, and I love that. And I love that, you know, pick out the small joys in your life. And that's so valid. The joy is small. <laughs> <laughs> but it's real. And we it love that. It is real. I love podcasting. Yeah, Tracy, tell me something good. All right, my something good is a little different. Um, so I recently went on a trip. I think people probably saw it on social media. But um, on that, I got to do something really cool, which actually there's two parts of this. And some of our listeners will really appreciate the second half. But the first thing is I got to hike up a waterfall with my mom. Um, That's so cool. It was so much fun. It was something that I had done as a kid with my family. And so to get to do it like years later with uh, my mom and I was really fun because we were pointing out like, oh, we went. We took a picture here last time we were here and um, it was – for anyone who's done like rock scrambles and hikes, it was that but water coming at you. At first, they had you holding hands with the person in front of you and behind and very quickly no. I was like, this is not going to work. I need my hands for balance. This No. Yeah, no. Um, so it was just – it was I think 600 feet but it wasn't exhausting because you're kind of going slowly and you're meandering and they – Again, I, this is why I love traveling with my mom and doing things with my mom is she's more adventurous and energetic than I'll ever be. So there's a part where they make you go down this little slide, like a natural water slide, and it dunks you deep into the water and you pop back out. And I oh, looked at it yeah. and said out loud, I'm not doing that. And my mom turned around and went, you 100 percent are. And You I, have to. I, yeah. And I did it. And it was delightful. And then the next one was you um, stood on this edge and you fell backwards into a pool. <gasps> Yeah. And I said, I'm not doing that. And she went, yes, you are. And we did it together. We held hands and did it together. Oh, my God. I'd have a really hard time going over backwards. I did. I screamed. I knew it was going to happen. And I still screamed. I was the only one who screamed. And water went straight up my nose into my brain. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm so grateful my mom pushed me to do it because, like, I'm so glad I did it instead of didn't. You know, it's better to have tried than not have done it. And that was kind of the realization. Um, so that was really Your fun. And then the, so the cool. second half, Rowan, we got to go to this grotto and cavern. Mm. And what was amazing was, of course, the history nerd in me was like trailing the tour guide like a little puppy for every like 
morsel of historical fact because it was just so interesting because it was a, a cavern where soldiers would, would use it for bases, enslaved people would use it for escape routes. And then in the 90s, it was used as a discotheque. So carved <gasps> into the side of the entrance of the cave is a stage. And obviously they had to stop doing that because it was very bad for the environment and, and the animals who live there. Oh, yeah, right. But oh, that would be bad, wouldn't it? it? Environmentally bad. But if I could just pop back in time while it was happening, oh. just see it for a second. I mean. Do you think the Fae use it now? Uh, they have Hold to. your revelries? Yes. yes, they have to. This place was so that energy. And so then the, the tour guide, I think wanting to scare people, was like, okay, who here likes bats? Me. Yeah. So I was like, me, I do. And she <laughs> shone a flashlight up into there was holes all in the ceiling of the whole cave. And you just saw all this, these dozen little baby bats all cuddled together and squirming because it was daytime and they were sleeping. Hey, lady with the flashlight, what you doing? Yeah, basically, they're like, hey, man, we're just trying to sleep. And so in all of those holes were all of these bats. And I just kept like geeking out. And you would see them flying around all through the caves. And so then I trapped the tour group. And made them listen to my spiel about why bats are good and important for our environment and they don't want to hurt you and they're gentle and they're sweet. <laughs> By the end of it, I had this one family come up and be like, we have never met someone who really loves bats before. That's great. We've never met anyone who loves anything as much as you love bats. That was the energy of it. <laughs> Let no person doubt why we have this podcast. <laughs> It was just it was great. It was it was a really it was so amazing to get to go through that that grotto and explore it and see the natural wonder and hear the history. And so my something good was just like on this trip that I went, I got to do what I love, which was spend time with my mom on an adventure and learn about history. So win for me tens across the board. Yeah, it's awesome when other people make us braver. I think so often being brave is about who you're with. I completely agree. And I'm, I am honored and grateful that it is my mother who is that way and, and challenges me. Ooh, I want to, oh, mm, I could just full circle it right back to the, the ride or die, the bar fight at the beginning <gasps> of the episode. Oh, Tracy, you make me brave. Oh, <laughs> that is true. You make me brave too. You make me want to want to stand up for someone in a way that I wouldn't even do for myself. So great, but not in Alexander the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining our episode. We're so happy to be back with our story times and remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, 
Join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating.